and welcome to TV My Husband Hates. You'll notice that this isn't our usual intro. That's because this episode is part of our commitment to being anti-racist. Wherever possible, we'll be using our platform to amplify black voices and storytelling, and this is one of those episodes. While we know we can never understand, here at TV My Husband Hates, we stand with the Black Lives Matter movement. Hi there, and welcome to a very special mini-sode covering the documentary um, 13th. How are you doing, Kat? I'm doing okay, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. It's uh, 4th of July today in the U.S., so yeah, there'll be a lot of fireworks tonight. Seems like an apt day for us to be recording this um, documentary on the 13th, actually. It is, absolutely, because there's this huge debate now going around social media on whether 4th of July should be a holiday as we effectively stole the country from the people who are living here already. So it's an interesting debate. I mean, it's one that, as a Brit, I'm not unused to, so that's fine. I mean, we have our fair share of pretty bloody histories in terms of decimating Indigenous communities. So, um, you know, well, well, welcome to the team, America. Yeah, we're, uh, I, we're, yeah, it's not, it's not a team we should probably be excited about. We're not about, proud of being on this team, but, yeah. you know, it is what it it's is. It's the mantle and, uh, that's there. And, and we're here, as Reagan says, we're here to discuss the uh, Netflix documentary 13th. And obviously this documentary has recently um, undergone a resurgence in population because of the current events surrounding George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement. But in fact, this documentary has been around since 2016. And I'm, you know, I guess the fact that I didn't know it was there or it hadn't uh, uh, sort of appeared on my radar is indicative of why... You and I, as TV My Husband Hates, have also committed to using this platform where we can to kind of raise up black voices and black storytelling. And this is one of the ones, this is one of the shows that we wanted to include for that reason. Absolutely. I loved this documentary. It opened my eyes to a lot of things I'd never thought about um, because it doesn't affect me on my day to day, but it makes me realize how much I need to kind of open my eyes and really have more empathy and think about the people that it does. Yeah, I think as well, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think part of this documentary, and in fact, part of the whole thing that's going on at the moment with Black Lives Matter and and the fallout after George Floyd, um, has been on a personal level, something that I've found really uncomfortable. And, And I know I'm not alone in that. I know that there are some people that are struggling to admit that, but I can hold my hands up and admit that it has finally... And I don't know what was different about this time, but I think for a lot of us, it's been different. And and as white people, I really have been confronted in a way that I never have done before with my own subconscious biases and prejudices, which if you'd have asked me three months ago, I would have sworn blind weren't there. But I think the reality is that they always have been there. And... um, and now is a time for us to, I guess, do the research, learn more and come back and do better. And and this is what we're trying to do. Absolutely. I think it's it's all about reflection and change and not necessarily beating yourself up for it, but just pausing and trying to do better. Like, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, not I think moving on, but moving on in a more educated manner and really being able to stand up and speak up for the things that you see versus just ignoring them or, you know, not confronting when you hear kind of racist issues. Well, and and 
on a more positive level, using our privilege, whatever that looks like, to recognize that there are people who don't get the same privileges and how therefore can we do, how can we help them? How can we support them? How can we raise them up? And I think, you know, highlighting black directors, black authors, black actresses, black uh, content creators, black small businesses, big businesses, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff and making a conscious choice to perhaps choose um, something outside of your normal circle of kind of reference, I think is something that's that's really, really important. And and as I said before, it's something, and as our intro said, it's something that we've committed to as a platform. So this isn't TV our husbands hate, obviously. No. <laughs> um, but but it is something that TV our, hus- our husbands hates believes is important. And so we want to make sure that uh, that we did this documentary and, uh, and that we reviewed it and chatted about it and put it out there for people to hear about. Absolutely. And I think for me personally, being parents, it's how we can raise our children to continue do- doing better and really having honest conversations about race and privilege with our children in particular. And everybody should be having these conversations with their children to kind of continue that work and make sure that this stuff doesn't happen again. Make sure that we can move forward and really rectify some of these really hideous wrongs. Well, we've been talking to our girls very openly about it in obviously an age appropriate way, but but we haven't shied away from the conversation. We've made a point of sitting them down saying, we need to talk to you about this. And in fact, an, a relative of mine sort of suggested that Bo was too young or, you know, she's almost four um, and that maybe even Billy was too young. And the reality is, you know, if you're a black girl who's six or seven or three or four, you don't get to choose when you have that conversation about racism. You know, it's something that may happen to you and something that forces a conversation that you have to have with your parents. And we very much felt that if black children didn't get the choice about when to have that that conversation then my kids didn't get that privilege either and that we would confront them at an age whatever age that was where it became apparent and and so we've sat down and had that conversation with them and you know and and they get it we live in a very diverse society and and we've told them about their responsibilities and and it's been a really interesting conversation to have and I think one that parents shouldn't shy away from Well, that's what I was going to say. It's not that hard to really have that conversation with young kids. I think you can tie it a lot to bullying, which kids are already talked to about, you know, pretty regularly. And this is just another step forward. And it's bullying about color of your skin and race and difference. And I think those are all things kids can grasp. They are a lot more clued in than a lot of people give them credit for. They absolutely are. And and actually, they see it much more clearly than we do. And, 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 and if we speak to them when they're young, we're getting them before these kind of insidious beliefs and subconscious kind of biases take root. And I think if we can really get to them and start having that conversation on the regular, there's every chance that we can start to develop a, a generation that's more tolerant and, and more, hopefully, more equal. But... Um, but... That being said, we are all doing yes. our best and and we would love to discuss this documentary because uh, Ava DuVernay, the author, has done a phenomenal job in terms of really, for the first time for me, again, you know, because it hasn't been my realm of experience, you know, I knew about the race issues in America. I knew about the just, the problems with the justice system in America and I knew about mass incarceration, but what I didn't 
put together was the line that runs between all three of them. And she does that masterfully in this documentary. Yeah, she does it really well. And something that I did was I actually looked up, I looked up the 13th Amendment, and I think it's something I never really focused on. So the 13th Amendment, it says, neither slavery nor involuntary involuntarily, uh, sorry, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. I never really focused on the but part of it, if you will, of the, of the amendment, like, unless you're convicted of a crime, then we can we'll own your ass and we can do whatever we want with it. And I think that's the part that was really eye-opening to me and how that thread really ties into mass incarceration and politics and business and society as a whole. And Yeah, and I think we have to remember that that was a very clear decision based on race. This wasn't like, oh, this applies to anybody who commits a crime. This was an amendment that that free, freed, in, in, in sort of in quotations, yeah. freed slaves so this yeah. was an amendment that was directly related to black people. And so it wasn't saying, well, you know, even if a white person commits a crime, we own their ass. That wasn't the thing. It was like, actually, but yeah. if you commit a crime, we own your ass. And, and it just meant that it, it's just allowed, and this is what DuVernay sort of illustrates so beautifully, it's just allowed at various different elements throughout history for them to recreate slavery with a different face. Absolutely. They're all new iterations of slavery. Like, it, it's just a different way and a kind of a more socially acceptable way to say, we do still have slavery. We're, we're not letting people go scot-free. No. And, and you know, it, it, this idea that s- the slaves were freed is, is really a technicality. I mean, they weren't that free. And then they yeah. did this thing like convict leasing, where essentially they used convicts as basically as slaves. They literally just took them out of prison. They just bust them them in. Yeah, they just bust them into plantations to work as slaves. So they were in prison. I mean, it was almost worse. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, they they weren't, they weren't free to, you know, they, they, not that slaves were free, but they didn't, have time time with their family or time time away like these are prisoners who are you know bust in to work on the plantations do the exact same work and then bust out and not earn money or anything like that um and and i think what i found really interesting was she starts this documentary with the discussion of um the film the birth of a nation that's kind of right at the beginning of it and this is a film that i watched as part of my university degree and i I did a american film module and i know you it's impossible for you to discuss american film without looking at this movie because it was the very first blockbuster essentially and this movie came out after the emancipation of the slaves and was so detrimental to the black community in America. It was hideous. It was the worst piece of propaganda in the clips that I saw in this documentary. I can't even believe people went to movie theaters and paid money and lauded it as this amazing film. Well, they played it in the White House as well, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They did a screening there. And it's just, it's disgusting. And I feel like um, in the documentary, they talk about how the KKK was kind of dying down before this film came out. And in this film, they were kind of lauded as the heroes of the film. And then they started burning crosses based on what the director did of this film, which is hideous. Well, and and I think the problem is this idea that it was so, the the movie 
was shown in literally every movie theater and as we said the white house and all it did is validate this narrative that of this kind of cannibalistic black rape rapist figure which you yeah. know on a certain level still exists today and this film is almost directly responsible for that absolutely whereas if you look at the actual numbers uh, on interracial rape it happens far more frequently that it's a white man you know raping a black woman violating black women than the opposite yeah i mean it's this film was 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 awful because it it set the tone for what came since and this film was 1915 so for the 20th century this was basically what everybody rooted their feelings and emotions and beliefs in in terms of race and you know, it was finally kind of embedded legally with things like segregation and Jim Crow and all of that stuff. And that was, again, as Ava DuVernay kind of illustrates, just another version of slavery. Absolutely. We still have a say over where you are and where you can be, and you are always going to be less than. I think that's what those laws represented. I think that's what the film represented. That film just kind of embedded fear, fear of the other, in, you know, white society, which is still not gone to this day. No, and of course it gave birth sort of a few decades later to the civil rights movement, who obviously we know Dr. King for really well. That's how everybody um, sort of really thinks about it. Um, And the reality is that, that, again, the Civil Rights Act in 1964 was a bit like the 13th Amendment uh, in the Constitution, it didn't really do what it said it was going to do. It was it was no. this kind of politics that just made it look like he was doing the right thing, but actually just had a loophole or many loopholes that allowed for the continued oppression of black people. Well, and I think that's where, after the civil rights movement, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's where we really start seeing kind of the law and order politics of the U.S., and we see kind of the start of the mass in incarceration kind of in the 70s is when that started right after the civil rights movement so again they just kind of ramp up this you know the slavery in prisons and and i think this is the really interesting part because it's really with nixon that this Mm -hmm. this really begins it was it was was it johnson that signed the civil rights it was wasn't it yes yeah because it was right after kennedy that's it. And then it was, and then Nixon comes in and he starts this really like tough on crime thing. That's his big shtick. And he was the one that started this law and order. And this is kind of the beginning. And this bit blew my mind. And I think this was the bit when I watched the documentary that really brought it home to me that this wasn't just the oppression of black people wasn't an accidental byproduct of the policies being made. It was a, it was the direct reason for these policies being made. This idea of dog whistle politics that law and order and crime started to stand in for race so it was one it was those policies that even you know the democrats couldn't argue with because they were like well of course we want to be tough you know everybody wants to be tough on crime everybody doesn't you know wants to bring crime rates down but actually the reality is that they were doing this to keep the blacks oppressed and i cannot remember his name but i'm going to try and find it Uh, but it was nixon's advisor who actually explained this idea of dog whistle politics um, and said, you know, you talk about it as if it's financial, as if it's this, that and the other, but actually it's the blacks that that get oppressed and that's what we're going for. And it was that moment where I was like, oh, they fucking knew. They knew this was a conscious choice. Absolutely. I think you can just remove, I mean, you just interchange crime with black, right? Like that's all of the images that were in the media 
throughout all of these presidents up until, you know, Bill Clinton and pro- and still today, that's the image that we're given through media is, you know, these black men in handcuffs. They are the criminals. We want to be tough on crime. We need to get them. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's racism. I mean, it's racism and it's, and it's propaganda. This is no yeah. different to what Hitler was doing with the Jews to a certain extent. This is exactly the same thing. It's this 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 generalization of a community and and the demonization of them too. And I've got the quote. It was Lee Atwater who was a campaign strategist. It was actually to Reagan, not Nixon. But yeah. he was the one who admitted this dog whistle politics. And he said, you know, essentially blacks get hurt more than whites. And that's that was the goal. This wasn't just right. uh, an unfortunate byproduct. That's what they genuinely wanted to happen. And I think this is where I get really frustrated with my own naivety because I... You know, for whatever reason, and it could be ignorance, it could be, I don't feel like it's a lack of willingness to know this stuff more than a complete lack of comprehension that it could have been that way. And I understand that's because I've been protected and it's not something that I see. But this is why this documentary is so important, because it's the conscious nature of this oppression that continues well beyond the civil rights movement. Oh, yeah. I mean, it... it it's all been intentional. And I think where it's hard is, you know, the majority of my family are Republicans for decades. They, they've pr- pretty much voted for every Republican president in this documentary. And I think when you look at them, like in their hearts, they were like, of course, we want to stop crime. Like, you know, we, we want to create the society. And I don't think they ever in a million years thought that that's what they were voting for, but that is what they were voting for. Yeah. And, you know, it it's the the imagery and the realization that your government is not trying to help you. Your government is trying to single out a certain branch of society and continually keep them oppressed so that they can keep power. And I think, you know, it is a real naivete that for generations, we didn't look at the government this way. We looked at the government as, you know, kind of trying to be do right by everybody and pass these laws that on paper, look like they're supposed to help everybody. But in reality, they're not. They're really just trying to keep power. Yeah, 100%. And I think what's interesting is that you don't, you, you can't just put all this blame on Republicans. Part of no. the reason for this dog whistle politics was to lure, you know, Southern Democrats, they called it the Southern strategy, but to lure Southern, Southern Democrats onto their kind of voting register because... They were, they were saying, it's this, it's this, it's about finances, it's about crime, it's about this, that, and the other. And they were like, that sounds like reasonable stuff to be worried about. I'm okay with that. And the reality was, it was about keeping black people poor, it was about keeping them in prison, it was about getting them off the streets, it was about demonizing them so they had a reason to lock them up. Absolutely. And I think if we look at this documentary, it's not even the Republicans that did the most damage. It's actually Bill Clinton who did yeah. the most damage, who was a Democrat, who passed you know, the minimum sentence requirements and the three strikes rules and all of these things that just really impact poor black people in the system. It yeah, doesn't and- impact rich white people in the system. They pay their bail, they get out, everything's fine. But you know, it really targets a demographic that's not right. Well, and and even before they get into the criminal justice system, back when Reagan was still president, we first of all he like swift little sorry not swift like neat. What's the word I'm looking for? I can't remember. Knee knee jerk. No, clever move. We'll use that. It's not what I was going for, but that's what was mm-hmm. this clever move to put to to 
pull Nancy out to do the war on drugs, like, you know, to, to, to get to the mums and the women and to strike fear into them that if we don't get these drug addicts, these drugs off the streets, then your kids are in danger. But here's the funny thing. Um, they didn't really care about cocaine, yeah, they, but they really cared about crack cocaine. But they didn't care oh, yeah. about cocaine because that—that's what white people were doing. Absolutely. But crack cocaine, the stuff that the black people were doing because they couldn't afford the cocaine because you kept them poor. That was the real problem. That's the real problem. I mean, I'm a child of the Dare Reagan administration. I had Just all of say that no. in school. It was the that D.A.R.E. was like an educational program. It was like drug awareness resistance education. And that was put in by Nancy Reagan. She was the spokesperson. So at school, you had a cop come in and like show you drugs and talk about drugs and make you sign these ridiculous like drug promises that you were never going to do drugs. But again, it's just like another branch of propaganda that's now reaching into like the younger generation, right? Like again, oh, it's fine if you do a little cocaine or you do a little cocaine to get you through on Wall Street. But But it's a huge problem if, you're doing crack 100 yeah. percent. that's that's still compl- that's in existence that's still happening um and as i say getting nancy to do it was smart it made it seem wholesome it made it seem beyond the reach of politics and mm-hmm. put into the realm of family and like wrapped up with a little loving red bow and sent off as like a a gesture of goodwill from the government i mean it was right. just it was just so insidious um and then of course along comes clinton yeah. And does, as you say, the most damaging policies in terms of mass incarceration uh, that have ever happened. And funnily enough, it, to correct me if I'm wrong, but in this documentary, it features Newt Gingrich, who yeah. I was under the impression is like hardcore Republican. Yes, he was. But and maybe still is. But... Maybe still is, but not in this documentary. No, and I felt like that was... Fucking mind-blowing. Me too. That he was sitting there just reiterating everything that all, like, everybody else in the documentary was saying. He was like, yep, that's 100% correct. That's why we did that. Yeah, and I've got quotes. Newt Gingrich at one point says, we should have treated crack cocaine and cocaine the same. Duh. I mean, obviously, but to hear Newt Gingrich Gingrich say that and to not make excuses and to not try and fob us off with the same old bullshit was mind-blowing. And and yeah. there was other things that he, he goes on to say as well, you know, specifically about the incarceration of black people that I was I was blown away. And I think that was one of the really powerful moments where I thought, God, if, if Newt Gingrich is sitting here saying that we have gone seriously wrong down the route of mass incarceration when it comes to the black community, then there really is a fucking problem. Absolutely. Like, if a massive Republican can see it, then Joe Blow on the street should be able to, like, get it <laughs> and understand Blow. it. <laughs> <laughs> but but I yeah, think, I mean, I, I think it was the 1994 crime bill that, like, really was the tipping point because it gave yeah. more money to cops, prison expansion, it privatized prisons, and made prison a business, right? It militarized the police, and that's where we get kind of hyper-incarceration well, and of with course, a massive at this bias point, towards color. At this point, it's then this this dark cycle because you're taking, you're literally decimating an entire community of their father figures, essentially. So then you've got a ton of kids growing up without fathers, with fathers in prison. Now that doesn't help them. It doesn't mean that their father's meant to be in prison necessarily. But you started on this dark cycle now of kind of kids that grow up without fathers because the father is in prison and they end up going into prison. And it's, 
And then the government turns around and goes, well, it's their own communities doing their own shit to, their, to each to themselves. Right, it's their fault. It's their fault. And you're like, hang on a minute. You just took out not just all the fathers, all the leaders. You took everybody out of that community. What the fuck are they supposed to do? Well, and I think this is the thing, because I think you can, you can take this all the way back. Like, you take, you take this to slavery, which busted up families with, yeah. with broke generations of families throughout the ages. And all of these things did nothing to build the families back together, to build the community. It just systematically has continued to tear it apart for centuries. And then you wonder what the problem is. Like, it's obvious. You know, you've taken out the strong role models. You've taken out Malcolm X. You took out the Black Panthers. You took out Martin Luther King, like all of these really strong, powerful members of this community who are working to bring it together, you have put in jail or made them the most wanted. What kind of message do you think that sends? Well, and it's interesting you mentioned the Black Panthers because I also found this bit really interesting because I remember growing up learning about the Black Panthers or seeing them in movies, whatever it was, and they were always portrayed as this kind of terrorist cell, this very dangerous illegal, uh, violent terrorist cell. And the reality was that they weren't. They were a civil civil right movement. They were were vocal and they were strong, but they weren't illegal and they weren't, but they were portrayed as such. They were portrayed as criminals. And it's going to get his name because I wrote it down. Um, She says, Fred Hampton, 21 years old, was the leader of the Black Panthers. 21 years old, the leader of the Black Panthers. And to to mobilize that many people at 21 was phenomenal. And of course, they say in this documentary, well, of course, he had to go. And they were shot by the police without warning with his pregnant wife in bed. Yeah. And that wasn't because he was some terrifying criminal. That was because he needed to be stopped and shut up and silenced. Absolutely. And that's, that, in, that pushes those buttons in me because I think, fuck, I believed some of that propaganda about Black Panthers. Like, I, that's what I yeah. thought. I, I believed that shit because that's what I was told. Mm-hmm. And shame on me for not doing more research. But this is the kind of thing that makes me think we need to be watching more of this stuff. Absolutely. And it wasn't even just Fred Hampton. I mean, uh, I think her name is Asada Shakur. Yes. She was deported to Cuba. Angela Davis was on the yep. FBI's 10 most wanted well, list. Can we just talk, though, about Angela Davis and how she kicks up? Like, I fucking love that bit where they're like, here she is. She's held up for, you know, she's in, in court. She walks in proud as fuck, massive fro, goes in there, represents herself and wins and walks out a free woman i mean that must have been such a a unbelievable win i mean she's a phenomenal woman and i think it kind of speaks to i know we're jumping around a little bit but like the problem with mass incarceration and the bail and kind of why so many people are in prison right now are due to like plea bargains and not going to trial because ultimately if everybody went to trial the system would fucking collapse which kind of shocked me like i didn't understand that But if you look at this woman who was like, no, fuck you, I'm not taking a deal. I'm taking you to court and kicks their asses is just badass. Well, it really is. And it's and I mean, let's talk about that a little bit more now. But we also hear the story of Khalif Brada, who really, really devastating story. But essentially, he gets arrested and is offered a plea bargain. And as Reagan was saying, this has become something that the justice system relies on now. And They don't push it 
with white criminals. It's pushed with black criminals. It's pushed with black people who have been arrested, who can't afford to go to court, can't afford a lawyer to go to trial. They can't afford um, to pay bail. That's they can't kind afford of the to pay bail, so they're right? stuck like in they prison. They can't get out, so they're stuck right. in jail with people really pushing plea bargains. And their options are either you go to court with a lawyer you can't afford and you end up taking a, a mandatory sentence, which could be 33 years, whatever it is, something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, or you can take this plea bargain, which means you'll do six years... Um, and you don't have to worry about a lawyer or going to trial or spending all that money. And then it's done and you're all good. And of course, these guys are like, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do? I can't afford to go to trial. If I do go to trial, I'm black. Chances are I'm going to get sentenced with a mandatory sentence. Um, so, and, and here they are going, I probably didn't even really do it. Even if they're not guilty, they're still yeah. taking these, sent- these plea bargains because they're other op- they don't have any other options. No, and what's interesting to me is, like, once you're a felon, you can't vote. So, by, like, pushing all of this, you're also taking people out of, like, voting for new leadership, for having a say in the community, and it's a really fucked up cycle. Well, it it really is, and I think there was a, a, I can't remember the state, I want to say it was Alabama, but 30% of black men in Alabama cannot vote. Yeah, it, it's really messed up, and there's a lot of, like, initiatives going right now to get that kind of rule removed because it's unfair and it essentially guarantees big white men in power forever. Of course it does. And, 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 but this is why it's done. And I think this is the yeah. overriding takeaway that I have to really accept from this is that these are conscious decisions. It's not an unfortunate byproduct. This is what they are hoping to achieve, to take away power, whether it's the vote, whether it's the chance to earn money, whether it's the chance to have a stable family, all of those things that we know are essential to kind of prosperity and healthy growth they are doing to this day everything they can to prevent black people from having that absolutely which kind of brings me to the point in the documentary with this um kind of politician corporation club called alec which has really fucked everybody over and i find it shocking that this is even allowed like Politics and businesses should not be in bed with each other. Right? It's like church and state. Problem. A hundred percent. That's exactly how I feel. The fact that big business and corporations should be so closely entwined within politics just to me screams problematic. Well, and to the point that they are writing legislation to directly benefit the businesses in this club, and like these legislators are just passing them on, like sometimes not even bothering to change the fucking letter, like the letterhead on the bill, which is is kind of how it all came about. Which is dark in itself, but when one of those big businesses is a private prison company that relies on having its cells filled to make money, and then is responsible for the stand your ground law which allowed the murderer of Trayvon Martin to go free right which was Walmart so Walmart was, was it. part of Alec and they they're like the biggest seller of guns and ammo in the United States and so they proposed the stand your ground law to allow people to buy guns which is what George Zimmerman who's the man who murdered Trayvon Martin got off on murdering this 17 year old boy was the stand your ground law all because Walmart wanted to sell more guns and ammo. And I mean, and then we, you know, in the prison company that wanted to keep their cells filled and yeah. now, and now that that kind of little bubble has been burst for them because everybody's right. realized that it's really fucking dark. He's like, well now this guy who's representing Alec, who by the way, was dead behind the eyes. Uh, I do not know. Oh, he, he, 
he was dark as fuck. He's yeah, he going, was. oh, well, now we're, we're really into reform. And, and actually, um, because this company that's all into tracking devices and all of that is, the American is now Bail Corporation. the big funder of ALEC, now they're yeah. like, well, now we don't want to put black people in prison anymore. Now we want to keep them under house arrest and, and use all these fancy tracking. And isn't that humane of us? And it's like, no, it's uh, no, no, it really isn't. You're just expanding slavery to people's homes now. Yeah. You're you're not happy that they're just in prison. You now want to keep people imprisoned in their homes. It's it's a dark, dark, twisted circle that it is. Makes and I want to vomit. Well, it blows my mind that this is allowed. It blows yeah. my mind that this is allowed. And I don't know if there's anything in the UK that's that's similar to that. I, I genuinely don't know whether there is. I'm sure there I, is. If I thought about it, I mean, I'm sure that there's the peer. I mean, there's lots of shit going on that isn't. But it. But that we all know about this, Alec, and that it's still happening is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, there have definitely been businesses that have left. Like, I think Walmart pulled out. Like, a lot of the big businesses... But the family, the Walmart family still fund Alec. Even if the business pulled out, the family still funds it. Well, they fund a lot of crazy shit because they just have shit tons of money. But, um, yeah, it's it's all just... It's all a big fucking mess. It It is is a big fucking mess. The way American politics and business are so intertwined. And I think it's not quite the same in other countries who have different systems. Like, the parliamentary system... Is, is set up differently. But what I found what was most troubling is that our, judici- our judiciary system, which is the judges who we have put in place to make these decisions, have now had their hands tied by the politicians of the system to where and they the can't even use their judgment and the businesses. So it's like, why do we even have a judiciary system at all? Like, if you're not going to let these informed people make these decisions based on the laws of our country, then what the fuck? Why are we even bothering? And I mean, let's talk that the yeah. judiciary system isn't perfect because only no. 7.4% of all judges in the US are black or of an ethnic minority. So this is not uh, this is not a jury of your peers, if you like. You know, this is not no. that. This is white people keeping black people and ethnic minorities down. Um, and I think there needs to be so much, there needs to be such an overhaul. And I don't even know how possible it is. I don't even know how possible it is. And I feel like it has to come from us, from educating ourselves, from us standing up and saying, we're not okay with this anymore. Um, but the worry is, I just don't know whether there's enough of us that understand or that are at least trying to understand what's really going on. I think too many people are benefiting disproportionately from this system and they just don't want to do anything about it. I think you're 100% correct. And I mean, I think that's where, you know, we see the rise of Trump in the documentary um, just still spewing this really disgusting, hateful rhetoric. And, And he is now president and hopefully may not be president again. But I think this is the problem. I think you just, like, they're fighting, like, you've got these people who are fighting like hell to keep the system the way it is. And they're the very rich, the very powerful because they're the, they have the most to lose if the system changes, right? Like if other people can come up and make a difference, they're the ones who are going to lose out. It's not kind of us in the middle who aren't the super power, you know, aren't super powerful or super wealthy. We don't have as much to lose by the system changing. But what I found was really interesting about the documentary is the way it talks about how media can really help and show, and it kind of takes it all the way back to slavery. Like you had Frederick Douglass who wrote the slave novels who were really telling the stories. And then it goes mm-hmm. to like the photo of slave Gordon with like his scars and really getting imagery out there. 
And I think the big turning point was Emmett Till, the young boy who was murdered by the white supremacist in the South. And that was the huge catalyst for the civil rights movement, his mom allowing his picture to be shown in publications to really show the problem. Martin Luther King used TV, and now we have camera phones. And that's you know how we saw George Floyd, how we, how we as a people are actually seeing pre- police brutality and what is actually happening. And there's, you know, and that's a double-edged sword in itself because, of course, it's essential. And I think the, the everybody would say that, sadly, that is essential. It's sad but true that we have to visually see this stuff to believe it's happening. Right. Um, but that has been the case and continues to be the case. But in doing that, it's it's often very traumatic for black people to see this kind of trauma being played out across social media, to be confronted with it, with these really ugly images. And I think somebody in the documentary says, you know, we need to stop black bodies being dead bodies on social media right. because that's what we're seeing at the moment. And that's dark and devastating. But at the same time, you know, it it is something that has really you know, enabled me to fully comprehend it because I swear on my children's life, and this is my own naivety and ignorance, and I will own that, but I genuinely did not believe that there were still people using the N-word and, and other racial slurs out of rage. And there's a there's a Instagram account called Karen's Gone Wilds with an S on the end, which is weird. Obviously, mm-hmm. this whole Karen phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and they are dedicated to putting up filmed instances of it, it right now very much racially um uh, fueled kind of rants and and violence and rages and all the rest of it and this isn't like old people this isn't old republicans pissed this is 30 something white women in california using the n word at a woman in starbucks because she's asked her to wear a mask i mean I recognize now the depth of my own ignorance because I genuinely, it's never a word that I would use. And I genuinely thought that that applied to the large majority. But what I'm realizing is actually the rise of Trump has made this okay. Well, absolutely. I think what accounts like that do is really raise the veil on what racists look like. Because I think we all have the image of the backward backwoods hillbilly who likes trucks and guns of course they're going to be racist that's just kind of a part of the the image it's on brand right but that's those aren't the only racists and i remember um i have a friend here in denver who would tell me things that she would encounter at restaurants and bars and i was genuinely shocked like holy fuck like I can't imagine acting that way. I had no idea how many people still do, and it's not the people that you would think. And so I think kind of Instagram pages like that, things like that in the news are really helpful in raising the veil on who are the actual racists. It's not who you think. It, It is the girl next to you in Starbucks, you know, ordering extra foam or yeah. whatever, you know, like it's, it's not extra who you think fucking it is. foam. Anybody who orders extra <laughs> foam is already a cunt in my, I mean, extra fucking 100%. foam. Fuck off. Yeah, no. But I think think that's where media can be very powerful and more positive because I think it is showing people who didn't think this was a problem that it is still a problem. And I I hate that it has to be that way. Yeah. But I think especially in small – like 
I don't, I live in a much smaller city than London. It is way more spread out. It's not as diverse. And I think people who live in this bubble think that that's all there is. And it's not. Well, and I mean, I live in London. I live in a hugely diverse area. Billy's the only white English first language kid in her class. So I'm, I'm in a diverse area and I'm still ignorant to it. Like, and that's, and I think we all have to stop being shocked by this. You know, okay, we didn't know. We do know now. It's not enough to go, really? No, No. God, that's awful. It's, we have to stop now and we have to shut up, listen, learn, educate ourselves and just fucking do better. And I feel positive in a lot of ways because I feel like I know on a personal level that I can do better and I want to do better. And I really feel that there's a lot of people that feel the same way. But I also feel anxious because I just worry that there's always going to be more people that don't feel that way. And I think we see that with the Black Lives Matter movement and how the backlash to that is. Um, And I think it's necessary. I also want to say, I think this, this, this tangle is necessary. I think we need the rise of Black Lives Matter. And I think the necessary component to really start combating racism is the rise of the racist. I think we need to see them their glory. We need to see them in their most disgusting, hateful ways, because I think that's a necessary part of shifting the mindset of, of, like you say, raising the veil on the racist and the reality of what has been hidden and, you know, called something else for so long. Now we're seeing them. We're seeing them in all their glory, pointing guns at people, using racial slurs, violence. Um, And I think it's necessary and it's ugly and it's awful. But maybe there is hope. Maybe this is the next hurdle that we will overcome. Well, and I think it has to get ugly. It has to get ugly to change. Protests have to happen to make change. Violence sometimes has to happen to make change. No lasting change has come from people simply kneeling at football games. And having so a that chat. got everybody all riled up. It's making people stop and think and really examine their prejudices and their biases and what they can do to change. Like, all white people should be pro-Black Lives Matter. Because it means everybody's lives matter. The Black Lives Matter movement is the last people who haven't mattered for fucking ages need to finally matter so that we all matter. Yeah, this all lives matter. It really gets, it's like a bee in my bonnet where people like respond to Black Lives Matter. Well, all lives matter. Right, but when has your white life never mattered? Right, and also stop being like consciously obtuse. You know what's being said. Like we understand that Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter's Black lives matter too. They matter right. as well. The assumption we all know white lives matter. We've spent when has white lives never making when sure have that, white lives never mattered. I mean, yeah. come the fuck on. Don't be a dumbass. Yeah, like, let's get not on get board. fucking obtuse. Don't dilute the message. Get behind Black Lives Matter and actually let's make a change in our society. Well, and if it has to get a little violent, then then that's what has to happen because. Uh, the other thing that, and, and then I think we'll wrap it up, but the other thing that I um, really get mad about is this idea of peaceful protest because the nature of protest is that it isn't peaceful. Like, it, it can't be. Like, it just no. isn't. And, you know, if you have to protest something, there's a wall of angry people that don't want you to do that. So by its very nature, and this idea of peaceful protest is just a way of silencing them more. It's silencing them further, keeping them down, telling them, no, 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 no. 
this isn't the way to do it. You know, it's the only fucking way to do it. And if that's what has to happen, then that's what has to happen. Well, and again, white people, where the fuck do you get off telling people how they need to fucking protest? Yeah. Because you ha- like because when there were peaceful protests going on fucking years ago when people were not standing at the um oh oh our song like our our national anthem at sports games people weren't standing people were it would, kneeling yeah. it fucking blew up all over the news that was peaceful protest and you had a problem with that too it's not your job to tell people how to protest shut your mouth learn grow. That's your exactly. only job you have right now. And I think that's what we have taken on ourselves. Absolutely. That that while we are here to discuss and raise and and promote black content creators, storytellers, authors, podcasters. directors, podcasters, all of that stuff, um, there's also a lot of room where we are also doing the work off the mic and off the camera and we are yeah. reading and watching and learning. So if that is anything that you think that you like us to watch or that you think we should read, if there's anything that you feel like we've got really fundamentally fucking wrong all right. right, then yes. please come to us with love. You know, don't come and be a dick. That That's not great. No. Come to us with love. We're here for any kind of constructive criticism. We're here for any advice or tips or anything that you think we should be reading or talking about. Please let us know. Um, and, of course, if you, if you want to be a guest on our podcast, we would love to arrange that when we can, if we can. Absolutely. Um, please let us know. But... But yeah, if you haven't watched 13th on Netflix, please, please go and watch it. Yes, absolutely. It's a must, it's, it's fabulously done and it's a must watch, in my opinion, to inform yourself on what's actually going on. It absolutely is. But for now, that's us. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be doing as many of these as we can. So please let us know if you've enjoyed it. Make sure that you rate and review us if you can. That's how... We managed to push to to keep producing the podcast. Um, so that's always, always um appreciated. But for now, thank you very much. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. Please subscribe, rate, and review TV My Husband Hates wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at TV My Husband Hates and join the Facebook group to keep the conversation going when the podcast ends. If Twitter's your thing, you'll find us at TV Husbands Hate. Theme music and production for TV My Husband Hates is by Jimmy Sims. Mm-hmm.